Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the issue of idolatry with Dr. Stephen Fowle, professor of theology at Loyola University of Maryland, and the author of the book, Idolatry, which came out in 2019. That's Idolatry with no subtitle. So, uh, Dr. Fowle, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So if you could start by giving us just a little background on yourself, what sort of church traditions or denominations you've been part of, and what has influenced you. Okay, sure. Um, I was raised in the Episcopal Church, um, but in my early high school years, I uh, had a really great experience at a uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, where I sort of began to be confronted with the gospel and responded to that invitation and uh, was deeply nurtured in that congregation. Uh, I think unlike uh, a lot of uh, evangelical churches, most of the folks in the church I was going to were first-generation immigrants from Norway, and they hadn't been socialized into American evangelicalism. So uh, I went off to Wheaton College and uh, intending to go into the ministry and I had not been socialized into American evangelicalism either. So I, I found it uh, socially a bit strange compared to what I experienced in high school. Um, <clears throat> but I also realized I, I wasn't quite suited to the ministry, um, that I didn't have the level of spiritual maturity or wisdom to, um, to pastor a church quite frankly. I was, however, really intrigued by studying, by studying theology, the languages, and that led me to go on to do a graduate degree. Uh, I did a, a PhD at the University of Sheffield um, on Paul, and Paul's sort of always been a long-time specialty for me. Um, ecclesially, I found my way back to the Episcopal Church, partly because of uh, living six years in England, but but even before then, uh, uh, my wife and I had started to go to the Episcopal Church uh, outside of Wheaton. And that's been my home ever since. Um, I've been at Loyola. This is my 32nd year. And uh, I have wonderful colleagues of all denominations. It's been, a, it's been a wonderful place that's been ecumenical and creative and theologically serious at the same time. Um, and so I've, I've been really fortunate that God's led me through this path down to where I am right now. All right. So um, the word idolatry, idol gets thrown around by Christians. Anything that seems to get in the way of God that they don't like, that um, they can get attracted to, people yeah. call an idol. So yeah. how do you define idolatry and what sort of principles and guidelines would you use in discerning if something really is an idol? Well, Dennis, you're right that Christians nowadays tend to use language around idolatry to simply say, I don't like this, and you shouldn't like it either. Um, it's it's not really functioning quite the way it does uh, scripturally. Um, it's more like a term of abuse almost. And I think one of the things that got me thinking about this area in the first place is is that the recognition that no nobody in ancient Israel— Certainly no Christian in the early church ever woke up one day and said, you know, the sun's shining today, I'm going to become an idolater. 
no no believer ever sets out to become an idolater and yet it very clearly happens and the more i investigated this it seemed to me better to think about idolatry as a sort of process a sort of incremental process because nobody you know, because nobody sets out intentionally to become an idolater it's always a set of small decisions you know something that seems wise here a prudent judgment there, an action here, a compromise there, and it's incremental. And all of a sudden, you've got Amos shouting in your face that you're an idolater, and you can't recognize yourself in what Amos is saying. Um, and so I tend to think of it much more like a process of gradually moving, turning your attention and focus and love away from God. Now, of course, what would be great is if there were some very clear line on one side of which you're not an idolater and the other side of which you are an idolater. And I, I can't figure out where that line is. My, my advice would be is to try and avoid ever getting close to it um, because it's sometimes really hard to tell when you've slipped into it and when you haven't. Um, but it gets, it, it would lead me to stop using, stop sort of saying that's idolatry and that's an idol and that's an idol um, and to think much more about um, the sort of habits and practices that Christians sustain in their lives and whether those enhance their capacity for wholehearted love of God or whether those are going to distract you from wholehearted love of God. And to spend more time exploring what those habits of distraction and inattention might be and then what you might do to counter them, too. All right. So... But would an idol have to be something that you assign ultimate value to above God or only something that you act as if you're assigning that value to it? Well, see, this is the thing that uh, in our world, nobody makes idols, right? You, you uh, Depending on where you live, but in, in, in the U.S., you know, the, you can't walk down the street and find an idol factory, right? It's we don't have purpose-made idols in the way that they did in the ancient world. And so the, the question is, how is your relationship or what sort of relationship do you stand into things and people, people, places and things um, that impact your ability to love God wholeheartedly? And so that's, that's the sort of reflection I'm more interested in is how our ties to people, places and things either enhance our capacities to love God more or distract from and maybe ultimately are destructive of our capacities to love God more. Um, very few people actually worship a thing in the way that you might have worshipped uh, Baal or something in the Old Testament. Um, and so it's, I'm, really, I'm really looking to move the question away from uh, whether spectator sports or capitalism or something else is an idol um, and focus more on the habits and practices of believers that either are going to use one's watching of spectator sports as a way of distracting from attention on God, or whether some of these things might actually enhance our life with God, depending on how we engage them. So you write about idols that represent Yahweh, but in uh, contrast to idols that represent other gods, so if you could talk about that, then especially in particular, talk about the golden calf and the bronze serpent. 
Right. Well, those are two really interesting stories. So first, when Aaron you know presents the calf that he's made, the golden calves, he you know he says this is the god or these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. He's really identifying these objects with Yahweh. Um, now, so unlike perhaps worshiping Baal or one of the other ancient Near Eastern gods, Aaron's not trying to supplement or supplant Yahweh. He's trying to give them Yahweh in an object. And in some ways, that's way more dangerous for them um, because it gives you this sense that this is something you can control, right? The the golden calf is, in a sense, part of partly about controlling God's presence with them because they're scared, right? Moses has been up on the mountain. They don't know what's happened to him. They assume he's dead, um, and they feel like how will we how will we manage without some sort of physical manifestation of Yahweh in our midst? And so that's a very different sort of. Um, idolatry, not better, but a different sort of idolatry from, um, you know, fashioning uh, an object and worshiping it as a different god. Um, so that that's a sort of distinction that you might make there. The golden ser- or the bronze serpent, sorry, is uh, you know is something that is very troubling in Israel's history. Um, it kind of looks like God has instructed them to make an idol. And certainly that became very troubling for later Jewish interpreters. And they give very sort of different takes on this to try and make it clear that this isn't idolatry. Um, Now, of course, it becomes an image that Jesus takes up and and it becomes uh, an image for salvation as well. That enterprise, the the bronze serpent in particular, um, points to how difficult Sometimes it is to identify idolatry, even in the Old Testament. It would be really great if we could just say idolatry is the worship of other gods through the means of created images. But it doesn't work quite so neatly. And the golden calf is one example. The bronze serpent is another example. In the book, I point out a few other examples where sometimes you don't have to make an object at all to be called an idolater. You just have to... It just depends on what's going on in your heart. And then, of course, a lot depends on whether you're in control of the space you're in. And and this becomes a much bigger issue when you move into the New Testament. Um, And uh, I have a discussion about 1 Corinthians and about eating food that's been sacrificed to an idol and kind of Paul's recognition that in Corinth, it's an idol-soaked space. There's nowhere you can turn that isn't touched by an idol in some way. And so because and the Christians can't control that. That's out of their right. hands, right? So they they have to learn how to negotiate their way through that space faithfully. And that's kind of what 1 Corinthians uh 8 to 10 is I you know it's a very complicated set of discussions and it's partly about Paul trying to negotiate his way or help the Corinthians negotiate their way faithfully through an idol soaked space where they're not going to be able to avoid confronting idols. Right. But as far as the serpent, I mean, then is it, does it fit in the category of all the other stuff that is made in the tabernacle and the temple? Well, These that, are aids yeah. to worshiping God or, or what? 
this seems to be something you look at in order to save yourself, right? When you're uh, to, it's a, it's almost like looking at it as a form of repentance, right? Of, and uh, and so it functions like one of those objects in the tabernacle, I suppose. But it's nobody ever thought that that those objects were problematic. Whereas later Judaism did kind of see, well, this is this is kind a little of problematic, different. and we got we have to we have to give some reason. We have to come up with some interpretation of what's going on here that avoids the conclusion that God is commanding the worship of an object. Right. And they do come up with them. Um, and of course, uh, it, it's just an interesting way to look at how Jews sensitive to this issue of idolatry have to deal with this passage when they come to interpret it down the road. Okay. And then we have the giving of the law at Sinai. So how does uh, the giving of the law, and especially the first commandment, how does that relate to idolatry? What's significant there? Well, it, it sets the stage, really, for everything that comes after, which is to make this really robust claim that there is no substitute for Yahweh. Right. It begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It kind of summarizes the previous um, 19 chapters in Exodus in that. So this is the this is the God who is giving these commandments. And there is no alternative to this God um, on the one hand. And you don't make objects of this God. Right. There's no there's no way to adequately represent this this God above all other gods. Um, and so it's primarily about setting the stage for the sort of later demands that you'll get like in Deuteronomy, um, in the Shema, um, that all of those are, are summarized by God's saving activity in Exodus and this claim that there is nothing you can substitute for Yahweh, not not a material object, no other sort of relationship, no other a God, and and this God is so concerned about the the sort of ultimate supremacy that nothing else, no other physical object can be used, which is of course a a challenging and a thrilling way to live in this world. You you worship a God. That cannot be seen, cannot be controlled. Um, you think of uh, in the Narnia Chronicles, uh, you know, they talk about Aslan. He's not, he's not a tame lion, right? It's the same sort of idea. This is this is not a tame god that you can somehow incorporate into an object and somehow control or feel that you're adequately representing. So it's it's about the unboundedness of God. And the the inadequacy of any material object to to combine or to constrain and comprehend that God, as well as the the sort of singularity of that God and the single minded, wholehearted worship that God uh, demands. So, how would you describe the key difference then between something that points to God, like we talked about before, something in the temple or tabernacle, as opposed to something that represents God? What is the decisive line that is drawn there? 
So this is in some ways the difference between an icon and an idol, right? Um, right, right. Um, and there's not, so So you've asked me for a decisive line. I'll, I'll try and describe the difference, but I think as I do that, it'll become clear that um, it's not a stable difference. Uh, I'll say more about that in a second. Um, if you think about an, an icon as like a set of lenses like I'm wearing or, or a window, it's something you look through that enables you to see God better, to have a clearer, more engaging, uh, more inviting, more compelling vision of God. So you look through it ultimately to see God, whereas the idol is something that stops your vision right there and your vision gets fixated on that thing. Hmm. So rather than being something that is uh, transparent to God, it it kind of puts a wall between you and God and stops your vision right there. Now, that distinction, of course, isn't always permanent with stuff. Something that might be an icon for you most of the time could actually stop your vision at certain points if you're not right. careful, right? So uh, I suppose an idol... Uh, I'm going to say this, and then I might want to backtrack on it. An idol could never become an icon, but an icon could become an idol right? in that sense, if you're not careful about how you're engaging that. Okay, so a lot of it has to do with the human heart as opposed to this this hard line that you can draw. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, you know, in the history of the church, various times people have really said, you know, we can't use material objects in worship. We can't use the material world as an aid to our worship. Um, and that kind of rears its head periodically, and you get some very austere forms of worship, as as well as some very ornate forms. Um, right. Well, it's still very common in so many sanctuaries and so many church buildings. There's just nothing there. Yeah. Of interest, there. right? <laughs> so. So yeah. all right. So you already talked a little bit about it, but if we could, um, you write a lot about. Uh, idolatry in the New Testament in relation to what's going on in 1 Corinthians with food and idolatry. So if you could uh, dive into that, give us some detail. Okay, well, as, as I already said, you know, Corinth is an idol-soaked world, and the Christians don't, don't have the control over the space to just say, get rid of all these idols. The way you sometimes get in reform movements in the Old Testament, where a king will come in and say, get rid of all the idols. Um, the early Christians don't have that option. Um, so they have to figure out how to live in this world faithfully in a way that doesn't compromise them, doesn't get them wrapped up in idolatry, but still has them inhabiting this idol-soaked world. And so uh, the idea of eating sacrificed food is one of the questions the Corinthians have. And Paul, Paul gives them the sense, well, you can eat sacrificed food, but you can't participate in the sacrifice. That seems to be one of the distinctions that gets made there in uh, in chapters 8 to 10. And so nothing about eating the food is really directly prohibited, or it the prohibition has doesn't have to do with the food, but it really has to do with your relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That concern for other believers is 
in a sense, way more important than eating food, whether it's been sacrificed to an idol or not. And it would have been, I don't think we have a good sense of the percentage of food available in the markets that would have been offered in sacrifice, but it could have been quite significant. And, uh, and so concern about other believers and how they perceive what you're doing is key. Um, love, love, um, edifies and knowledge puffs up. That's one of Paul's phrases right. there, first Corinthians, um, that the knowledge that you have the permission to eat this food is one thing. But if you're really engaged in a relationship of agape with your fellow brothers and sisters, that knowledge that you can do that may need to be um, subsumed under the love you have because you know it will cause some harm to do this, even though you have, in some sense, a theological right to do that. The one place where he's absolutely clear, though, is you may not participate in the sacrifice. You cannot sacrifice in any one of these temples and also be a follower of Christ. You know, Christ has no partnership here with the the other gods. Um, But concern about how you're comporting yourself in relation to your brothers and sisters is important. And then you get that that interesting discussion. And, you know, what if you get invited out? Um, And again, it's not so much concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ, but concern for what your behavior tells your host about Christianity mm-hmm. you need to be paying attention to. And so, although the eating is the subject of the conversation, Paul's always got his eyes out on how is the body of Christ living together and making that central, and how is the world perceiving Christians and making that important when you go out and eat in other people's homes. Um, but it's, I know people read these passages, these chapters, and it can get really confusing, especially because English translations sometimes don't clearly make the distinctions that Greek uh, words sometimes do. And, uh, and it's, it's, if you get the sense of how difficult it is you are rightly grasping that it is it's a difficult issue to try and negotiate your way through this world faithfully um and paul's touchstones though are are not so much the meat or um the act the fact that it may have been sacrificed but the fact that you need to pay attention to how your actions have an impact on your brothers and sisters in christ and how your actions tell the world something about christianity and paying attention to those two things is going to be the most important thing you can do in negotiating your way through this idol-soaked world. And we still have similar issues today. I mean, who manufactured this? How much were they paid? How were they treated? What is this product doing to the environment, et cetera, et cetera? So. Indeed, yeah. Um, and Christians are not always that great on having those discussions, Um we and just I, want to be thankful and say, well, if we're thankful for it, that covers everything, right? Yes. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, no, not always. Okay, not so always. Um, you talk about forgetfulness um, in relation to idolatry and go back to Deuteronomy 6, so, um, which contains the Shema. And so if you could talk about that and this, the exhortation to teach the next generation the ways of God, how does that all tie into our topic? 
Sure. Well, remember, you know, believers don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to become an idolatry. It's a process, right? Um, and the sort of regular, and I think that's not just true for Christians. I think that was true in the Old Testament as well. Um, and one of the sort of touchstones here is this, the daily repetition of the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is, is one God. And the, and the command to tell this, talk about this all the time, or at least regularly, maybe, you know, at home, when you're with your family, when you're traveling, put it on uh, the buildings, publicly display it on the buildings. Um, because attending to these words, right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that that, that attention to those words is key to avoiding the incremental moves that lead you to idolatry. And throughout Deuteronomy, there are all these moments where Yahweh intervenes to say, listen, you're going to have lots of opportunities to forget me because you're going to be in a great land, you know, with all sorts of, you're living houses you didn't build and drink from cisterns you didn't dig and eat grapes from vines you didn't plant. And you're going to eat your fill and be, tempted to forget about me and worship other gods. And I know that's something we can come back to in a moment. But uh, but it, this opportunity of forgetfulness is right up there against the commands of the Shema to say these things and attend to these words in a regular sort of way. And, uh, and so the, the bits that follow the Shema about where you, where you put these words where you speak about them, when you talk about them with your families, when you wake up, when you go to bed, all that stuff, inscribing them on your hands and things like that. Jews really took these practices very seriously, at least observant Jews do, um, because they understand that these physical habits and the talking about these things are ways of deepening our capacity to remember. And the more you do that, of course, the more you're avoiding the prospect of forgetting. And so the, the commands that follow on from the Shema are really about setting the stage so that when you get to those later points in Deuteronomy, you have the resources you need to not forget. All right, then, and that's related to, um, you talk about catechesis and countering idolatry. So um, how would you develop that notion of catechesis? Well, the in a sense, what Deuteronomy describes in a very few verses is really a process of teaching, of, catech of catechesis, of teaching yourself and your children and the next generations about Yahweh so that you keep that story alive and enable that story to help you live faithfully in the present, whichever time your present happens to be. Um, and, you know, biblical scholars like me are often um, guilty of lamenting the state of biblical knowledge or biblical literacy in churches. And that, that's sort of a, a, a fun thing for people like me to whine about. But, but really, the, the, the state of catechesis in our churches is much, much worse, right? Uh, the, the teaching of not just the Bible, but of how the Christian beliefs that have their origin in the Bible hang together in a sort of coherent way to provide you with a, a 
clearer picture of the God you're worshiping and a clearer way of thinking about how you should order your life as a worshiper of that God, those are in much, uh, much worse states of repair than uh, Bible reading. Um, but those are crucial for the people of God to avoid forgetting. Uh, when catechesis falls into disrepair, forgetting is the next step. And, so, and that's so dangerous, right? So besides uh, Bible reading and understanding biblical theology, et cetera, what, what components would you add to the catechesis? I would say that some sort of basic study of the history of the church might be good. Um, and I know this would be this would be a divisive comment in, amongst different groups of Christians, but um, the repetition of the creed regularly in worship, uh, and and then accompanying that outside of worship with instruction on what is this. What are we actually saying when we say this creed? Because it's really designed to set up some parameters within which Christians can faithfully think about God. Um, and so I, I would certainly just repeating it every Sunday in worship is, is probably better than nothing, but not sufficient unless it's, it's got some instruction carrying, you know, to, to carry on with that so that it's not just a set of words you're saying, but it's a way of helping you understand how the beliefs of Christianity kind of hang together in a loose sort of way. Uh, instruction in prayer, practice and instruction in prayer. Um, because the Shema is in a sense uttered as part of a prayer, um, prayer is partly a way of shaping our believing. And so, uh, so instruction in prayer is also crucial in this. Those those things, in addition to Bible reading, would all be great things to have as part of a, a general catechetical practice. And obviously, you have to do it in an age appropriate way um, as well. So, I think starting with the Nicene Creed on five year olds is probably not going to work well. Um, but um, six year olds, yeah. Wait but ultimately, six. you know, most churches at least many of the churches I know, kind of leave you at about 13 years old and kind of let you, you're on your own, kind of. The the adult formation that goes on in a lot of churches, particularly in the mainline Protestant churches, is not really catechesis um, and not really coherent enough to shape Christian believing, or at least to provide it with the sort of robust um, resources it needs to live in a world that uh, where idolatry is a real prospect. I know other churches do it better. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to learn from them. Um, but it's one of those things where uh, it tends to fall by the wayside if there's not somebody constantly pushing it. Because it requires um, a sort of skilled person to do it well, especially to do it well with young people. Another area is... Um songs that have some theological depth Indeed, as opposed singing, to just yes. expressing emotion. This is how I feel about you, God, which has some place, but it's gotten out of control. So, right. Well, but if, I mean, having just come out of a pandemic, um, 
if you've been trained in the sort of lament psalms or songs of lament or just the practice of being able to lament to God, it it was enormously fruitful to have those resources available to us in the middle of a pandemic uh, to say this is this is not good and and be able to fit that within a faithful life with God rather than this is not good God and I'm turning away or I'm really mad at you God and so I'm stopping a relationship with you um, it helps you explain your dissatisfaction your sadness your pain and sorrow to God in a way that keeps the relationship going rather than breaking it off and so uh, yeah so and songs of lament can also be part of that yeah that would be a helpful addition more songs of lament within the uh, the song yeah most of the most of the hymns and songs in churches are not they're really meant to be uplifting and happy but uh but there is some music church music that really does convey that that lament and often it's music associated uh with funerals requiems mm-hmm. you know um give you that sense of brokenness and crying out to God, begging God to listen to you, but ultimately confessing God's faithfulness at the end. Um, but those are skills that, boy, I, you know, I wish more churches had done more to prepare, you know, nobody prepared for the pandemic, but, um, but it, the pandemic showed that here's something we we as Christians really have deep resources for thinking about, and we didn't, I don't think we always brought them up and used them in the ways that we might have. All right. So um, moving on, you, you write about um, this phrase, eating one's fill in a culture that won't take full for an answer. So um, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by this phrase? What's behind it? And what does it have to do with contemporary idolatry? Sure. Well, you, you remember a little while ago, I was talking about the, the importance of remembering was cast against these later passages in Deuteronomy where God warns the Israelites, you're going to eat your fill. You're going to enjoy the blessings of this promised land. And at that point, when you've eaten your fill, be careful that you don't forget Yahweh and turn and worship other gods. Um, and so eating your fill is one of those moments where if you don't have practices of remembering in good working order, there's a real temptation to, um, to forget. Now, when I was working on that particular chapter in the book, I was, walking back from our, uh, we were in Seattle on sabbatical and I was walking back and forth to my, our apartment. And, uh, there's this huge billboard for the Washington state fair where the picture is of a man who is trying to eat a hamburger that was roughly the size of his head. And, uh, and the tagline was Washington won't take full for an answer. <laughs> and I, w- that billboard really broke open this idea to me because I was really struggling with it. That in Deuteronomy, it's a very clear sense that eating your fill is an opportunity for idolatry. But how do you even think about eating your fill in a culture that won't take full for an answer? That that makes it, um, excuse me, that makes it so much more challenging for us in a way that it wasn't for them. Um, 
eating our fill should lead us to delight in God's goodness. But our world is sort of full is not, not a real possibility, right? You never got enough. You have to buy more, consume more. Um, that our, our economic life depends on never being full. If we were ever full, if enough people were ever full and stopped buying, the economy would collapse, right? So how do we live? How do we think about our own consumption? And that's thinking about our own consumption is kind of just the first step to avoiding the forgetfulness that comes from eating your film. So it, it, uh, it really led me to think about how do we think about what we need in order to be full? And then as we think about that, how do we think about that in ways that will keep us remembering Yahweh rather than forgetting Yahweh? And it's really, it, it's kind of easy. And I certainly engaged in this sort of reflection in college with buddies on, on our floor. You know, how, how much do you think you could actually get by without? Or how, how little do you actually need in order to survive? And you can kind of, um, you can kind of pare it down to something really bare bones. Um, but that's not, that's, you know, that's, that's a person who's alive, but nobody would think that that person is thriving. And that, that can't be what, what we're, uh, thinking about here. Uh, the, and that's much harder than to figure out what's enough. Um, not bare minimums, but what do we need to occupy the place God has put us in with an appropriate level of dignity? Now, that's a very open-ended sort of question. And I can't imagine many congregations that could sustain that answering that question. Because it's not an individual answer, right? It's, or it's an answer that needs to be uh, engaged in in a community, right? You, you don't get to set that out simply for yourself. You have to engage in a conversation with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to say, all right, what what sort of things do I need to occupy this place God has put me in with a, a level of dignity? And then what do I do with all the rest? Um, and so it gives you a very different way of thinking about um, patterns of consumption and a very different sort of set of virtues of, such as temperance and moderation and self-control that need to be in place. And if they're not in place, we have almost no chance of thinking about this question fruitfully about, well, what do we do when we've eaten our fill and are challenged or tempted to forget Yahweh? Um, and in some ways, it's just a much more complicated and difficult situation for us than it was for the Israelites in Deuteronomy. Um, we have to we have to develop a whole superstructure of thinking about consumption before we can think about eating our fill and being grateful to God or turning away from God. Um, and that was a that set up set me down a path I did not anticipate going down when I first started working on that. So th that whole topic ties into greed. So you spend some time with that. So how do you relate greed to theology, particularly creation? And um, yeah, give us some, some of your thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, one of the verses it was clear I had to deal with in the book is the passage in uh, um, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that greed is idolatry. You know, it's in the, in the midst of of a, a set of things Christians are supposed to avoid, 
but one of them is greed, which is idolatry. Um, and as I started to puzzle over that, I recognized that this was not straightforward. The Christian tradition has often interpreted this verse in terms of uh, Matthew 6, 24, where you can't serve God and mammon, and wealth is really what's idolatry, the pursuit of wealth, which is idolatry. But that's that's really saying something different, that the pursuit of wealth can lead you to idolatry is well attested, both in the Old Testament and in um, the New Testament. But this is not greed will lead you to idolatry. This is greed is idolatry. Hmm. And in the first century context, greed, uh, most people in the first century would have all agreed that greed is wanting or desiring more than you deserve. Now, obviously for them, they have a very clear sense of what you and I each deserve relative to our places in society. It's a very rigidly hierarchical society. And, um, and certain people deserve more than others. But anybody could be greedy by wanting more than what they ought to have. Now, quite rightly, I think, we're not comfortable with assigning sort of places to people in that sort of rigid hierarchy. And I think right. that's a good thing. Um, but it raises the question of, of if desiring more than you ought to desire is greed, then that might give us a different way to think about greed as idolatry. And I turned to the doctrine of creation or the story of creation and, and thinking about creation as, um, as a place where we might begin to think about that. So, for example, um, you know, when God creates us, God creates us with desires, right? Our desires as created are good. Um, and God provides for the fulfillment of those desires in the garden. The garden is filled with things to meet human desires, including our desire for God. Um, and so all of those desires as created by God are good and are in the right relationship to each other, right? All the desires for things and for God and for each other, they're in right, right relationship in those first couple of chapters of Genesis. Um, and what happens is that humans desire something other than what God has offered, something more than God or other than God in Genesis 3. And that, you know, desiring something more than or other than God starts to give you that sense where idolatry and greed begin to overlap each other. Um, and so it seems to me that, that thinking about that, thinking about something, that if greed is desiring something different from what God wants from you, or more or other than what God wants for you, that's how greed becomes idolatry. Because it's, mm. it's turning you away from, it's turning your back on what God has offered, and choosing instead something else, which starts to fit much more comfortably within our standard notions of what idolatry is. All right, but you don't just leave us there with no. greed. You talk about thanksgiving. Right, and you've got to have some way of, of kind of thinking then about how do we 
keep our desires in the right sort of relationship to each other and to God so that we so that our desires are rightly directed to God and not turning us towards idols or idolatry. And Colossians 3, same place where we get greed as idolatry, gives us some resources for that. Um, you know, it talks about um, becoming thankful people as kind of the antidote to all of these vices, including greed, that are listed here in the text. And that thankfulness is the result of letting Jesus arbitrate the desires of your heart. That's the that's the verse, I think it's in Colossians 3.15. Um, you'll let, let God, let Jesus, let the, Christ rule in your heart, arbitrating its desires is really a better way to hmm. um, translate that. And that that will generate thankfulness. Um, and so it becomes, thankfulness is the result of having the Spirit of Christ order and direct your desires. And that's not like a one-time invasion, right? That's a, an ongoing process of always subjecting my desires, which are in themselves good. They're not to be obliterated, but they have to be ordered and can, and disciplined in a sense by Christ so that they move me in ways that direct my attention to God. And that thankfulness is kind of the, the sign that your desires are rightly directed because it generates gratitude and thankfulness to God. And so, so it's kind of a two-part thing here. Thankfulness is kind of the antidote to greed, but thankfulness is really the result of subjecting your desires to the, the sort of healing gaze of Christ so that they get put in the right way, in the right place. And so you desire all these sorts of things and other people and God in the right way. And thankfulness is what gener is generated out of that. Um, so thankfulness is kind of the antidote to greed in that respect. But thankfulness is not simply just a, a general sense of gratitude, but it's the gratitude that comes from having our desires rightly situated relative to each other and relative to God. All right. And then... Beyond greed, um, you're talking about fear and preemption. What do fear and preemption have to do with idolatry, and what is preemption? Right. Well, you know, those those of us who were around in the first Gulf War, I think, remember the the doctrine of preemption of of hitting them before they hit us. Um, but that, um, but I, I want to say a bit more about that actually. Um, so fear is not necessarily a bad thing. If car is speeding towards you, fear leads you to jump out of the way. That's a good thing. Um, there are things that we should just rightly fear and avoid. It's when fear is disordered that it becomes a gateway kind of to idolatry. And a uh, number of passages in the Old Testament where the Israelites are surrounded by hostile forces and their fear of those hostile forces and their concern that God is not necessarily going to protect them lead them to enter into all sorts of idolatrous relationships and alliances with other people. So if you're getting attacked from the north and east by the Assyrians, you turn to the Egyptians in the south and west for help rather than 
turning to Yahweh. It's fear that drives them to uh, to turn away from Yahweh towards another sort of alliance. And and uh, and it's a preemptive action, right? We don't we see that the Assyrians might attack us, so we form an idolatrous alliance with the Egyptians before we have to rely, before we have to test uh, God's care for us and find out whether it's going to hold up or not. Um, and so when fear is disordered, we, we fear the wrong things or we fear to the wrong degree or we fear in the wrong way. And that disordered fear um, and fear typically for our security and our safety can lead us to preemptively act. Um, and that act often, at least in the Old Testament context, leads us into idolatry. Um, and you know, there, there are a bunch of stories, many of which I try to cover in the book, that look at how um, the Israelites, uh, when faced with external threats and are afraid of them, turn to other alliances. So, and uh, you know, in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah twenty-eight to thirty-one is one of those passages I look at where um, you know, in response to facing enemies, the Israelites turn to Pharaoh and not Yahweh, which is in deep, deep irony, considering where they'd come from initially. Um, and so that's how fear gets tied up in that. Um, now, the antidote to fear um, is love, right? Love, when it's perfected, casts out fear in First John. Um, and, and I take that that First John passage is really about um, the love of of God abiding in us and abiding in God, and we abiding in God. It's that mutual abiding that uh, us in God and God in us and God in others and us in others, that that uh, communion, so to speak, um, that when it's brought to its perfection, casts out fear. Mm-hmm. And so when I say love is the antidote to fear, it's that love that is the result of God's abiding in us and us abiding in God and the body of Christ abiding in God and God abiding and God's love abiding in that body that is able to cast out fear. My concern around that from the sort of first John context though, um, was that that, although I'm fine with that and agree with it, it tends to be a bit insular to shut out the world and to be a little too parochial. And so I, I have an expansion of that idea of love and tie it to mission. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that mission is that outward expansion of God's love to others. Um, so that the love and the mutual abiding is not something contained in a little little ball that's there um, walled off from the rest of the world. Um, which sometimes you get the picture of sometimes in in First John, um, but is expansive, outward flowing, the sort of love that um, flows out in Pentecost and is outward reaching and expansive in that way. So it's love with mission as the way of of sort of combating the fear that might lead to idolatry. All righty, and. So you discuss three scenarios of idolatry that take place in Deuteronomy. So what's, um, what are some uh, details about those and what's significant about them? 
each one of them, you know, it's talking about what happens, what might happen or what is likely to happen in the promised land. And each one of them are scenarios where um, they lay out realistic situations in the future when the Israelites might be tempted to abandon Yahweh in favor of worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. And, uh, you know, they come about from sort of uh, stories that people are told or from coercion or um, different sorts of each of the scenarios talks about a different way in which you might be tempted um, to abandon the worship of Yahweh and pursue uh, the worship of Canaanite gods. Um, and all of those are driven by a sort of uh, curiosity, right? Um, a controlled curiosity, I suppose, but um, curiosity. And it's such a, curiosity is such a, a, an interesting uh, idea because most of us like the idea of being curious. Uh, we, uh, on our student evaluations, one of the questions is, do you cultivate intellectual curiosity? It's something we, on the one hand, are very uh, much in favor of. And yet for much of Christian history, curiosity was a vice. Uh, and that's because it people understood that this desire to know, to know things, to, per, to inquire and pursue, um, that's inbuilt in us. And that's great. And that's God-given, that intellectual appetite, that desire to know and to inquire and to have an inquiring mind and inquiring heart is God-given and inbuilt. But it needs shaping and forming or else it can go in really bad directions. Um, and I talk about, um, you know, in Proverbs 9, there's the, the feast of wisdom and the feast of folly. You know, both of those are ways of directing our desire to know, but they're not both equally good. And people sort of talked about um, studiousness or studiositas as mm -hmm. that way of directing that our desire to know in ways that are productive and tie that knowledge ultimately to the knowledge of God. And curiosity or the Latin curiositas was always that feast of folly where you pursued knowledge, but either in the wrong sort of way or for the wrong sort of ends, and it led you astray. Um, and so that's why curiosity, although we almost always use it as a, as a positive thing, um, has that negative connotation because it's knowledge, it's the pursuit of knowledge, but not directed towards ultimately knowing God better. Um, and so, of course, that sort of knowledge that turns you away from God is um, the sort of curiosity that leads you to abandon the worship of Yahweh and pursue the worship of the Canaanites in, in Deuteronomy, for example, but certainly for us today as well. Um, so you um, you've used the phrase, the, the possessive desire of the eyes in contrast to the single eye when you're talking about curiosity. What's going on there? Well, the, the single eye is that eye that's focused on you know single-minded attentiveness to God, which then all the other things get they don't get obliterated, but they get put in the right sort of ordering and the right sort of relationship to each other and then to God, so that you um, you ultimately 
all of the things you know or all of your knowing and your quest to know is ultimately, even if only indirectly, helping you know and love God better. The possessive desire of the eyes is, is sort of, I want to watch this and possess it. I want to see this and own it for myself. Um, and you could see it in all sorts of um, ways in which we uh, engage in social media, right? Um, it is one of the things that's going on there. And I, I'm not sort of bad-mouthing it all together. I'm just saying it is an occasion where that possessive desire to know um, opens us to all sorts of knowing that either misleads or distracts us from the knowledge of God. And we think that we're, we're actually grasping it and possessing it, when in fact it may be grasping and possessing us. Um, that we think we have mastery over it, but in reality it may be mastering us. And that's, of course, one of those things where you... You may begin by thinking you're mastering it, and you may actually be mastering it at the outset. But over time, you can be mastered by those things that you're you're sort of observing and paying attention to. And I think many of us have had that experience of using various forms of social media, where it's great, and I'm you know, keeping up with my friends, and and then all of a sudden you can't put it down. You're checking it multiple times an hour. And you're concerned about how you look and how they look and you feel inadequate. And um, all of a sudden it's possessing you. Um, and so I, I don't think social media is the only or even the most prevalent example of that possessive desire. But it's one of those things where ironically you end up being possessed more than you possess. Hmm. Yeah, and it can relate to knowledge too. Just this right. possessive need to learn to be the smartest. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure right. that never happens in academic circles. No, 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 never. no, ever. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I know what it's like. A, it's like I no. got to be the smartest. I got to know more than everybody. Yeah, so. knowledge is a competitive enterprise. is never good for the soul. Um, and yet, of course, it happens, uh, even if even amongst theologians and biblical scholars. Even there. <laughs> Oh my gosh! So, um, so in your conclusion, you're you're applying um, the concept of idolatry to uh, modern day issues, and you talk about whiteness. So, um, for me, I think the word whiteness it does refer to something that's really is there that we need to de- deal with. However, I think whiteness as a word is problematic. Um, once it gets applied, like you're teaching kids about racism and it, it can have deleterious effects on young people. And it begs the question, if that's whiteness, then what's blackness? So whiteness is only bad stuff and blackness is the only only the good stuff. But even more, maybe for our situation. Uh, to me, it's a universal phenomenon, nearly universal with any culture where you have cultural dominance. Um this is going to be, um, this scenario is going to duplicate itself over and over again. So we have, in our situation, maybe rather than whiteness, white cultural dominance. Uh, that's actually a better phrase. Be better. I, I yeah. That's actually a better phrase. Um, you know, when I was writing this, what, and I wish I'd, I wish I'd talked to you beforehand. Um, uh, 
my options at the time seemed to me white supremacy or whiteness and white supremacy just got people's backs up right away. Right. And it says too much. It's, it comes on stronger than it needs to. And white cultural dominance, I think is, is perfectly fine way to talk about that where the world, our world, at least. And and I, I get that there have been other points in time where other cultures have dominated, but in the United States, um, this seems to be one of the pressing dangers on the church is that they operate in a world that is shaped by white cultural dominance. And that has many of the captivating powers that an idol soaked world such as Corinth had uh, over people. And the question then as a believer is like the question the Corinthians had is how do I negotiate my way faithfully in a world where white cultural dominance is the order of the day and in a world where that's already infected aspects of church life? Um, That seemed to me to be a pressing immediate issue um, in 2019 and certainly hasn't become less so now in 2022. Um, but that many of the, of the virtues that help you resist idolatry, of love and mission, of remembering, remembering truthfully, of um, rightly directing our desires, of the desire for fellowship with God, as opposed to greedily desiring something other than God, Many of the virtues that I talked about up till that point in the book seem to be useful resources for Christians as they try to negotiate their path through a world with, you know, where white culture dominates. Um, and, uh, and when you're writing a book on idolatry, um, people expected you to come out with a really prophetic denunciation of all aspects of church life or all aspects of American culture. And, and quite frankly, I, I, first of all, I don't think that was my job. Um, and I'm not very, I don't know that I'd be the right person to do that, but I did think I had to say something about our current situation because so much of the, of the work is situated in biblical texts from a long time ago. And I think, I, I think, you could have easily done something with Christian nationalism uh, as another alternative way where that's um, that's potentially a threat that will push Christians into idolatry in the same way that white cultural dominance might. And it's just I, I chose one rather than the other. Um, but there are, there are probably a host of other things other people could come up with. I think the real issue here for me, as I'm, I'm thinking about churches and their lives together, is thinking about these habits and practices, these virtues that will help you stand against the patterns that lead to idolatry. Because the when Amos is on the scene, it's almost too late, right? When you think about Amos, nobody believed him. Nobody thought he was telling the truth. Um, because Idolatry has that capacity to blind us and deafen us so that 
the deeper you get into it, the blinder and deafer you become, the less likely you are to be able to respond to Amos. And all of that kind of just compels me to say, don't get in the position when you need a prophet, because when a prophet's on the scene, it's already pretty bad. Um, and so these the habits and practices that the book advocates are really designed to keep you from getting close to that point where you're going to need a prophet, because the the record of the prophets is that when they are needed most is when they are least heard. And so we, we tend to want to avoid that if we can. Well, in terms of white cultural dominance, then what would you say like one or two really central necessary things we need to do to counter it? I think one of the things we have to do uh, as white people is to begin to practice dispossession, uh, emptying, self-emptying, like in Philippians 2. Uh, obviously not exactly the same thing as Philippians 2, but the sense that there are things that I that have naturally come to me that inhibit my ability to be in communion with all sorts of people. And one of the things I have to do as a, as a white man and in a university context, as a dean, I have a lot of power, um, is mostly to sit and listen, mostly to recognize the true things that other people are saying about the situations they encounter, and to be willing to give up some of the things that have come to me in order to enable others to um, move alongside of me or to help me move alongside them better. Um, so dispossession for, for powerful white men, and that's kind of step one for me. At least that's what I found for me. Um, highly accomplished white people want to fix stuff right away. And in our church, the the sort of conversations we've been having about racism have mostly the the black people in those conversations have been so gracious, but they really say, we don't want you to fix something right now. We just want you to sit and listen and understand the discomfort. Um, mm. Because it's only then only when you understand that discomfort can you begin to imagine productive ways of repentance that lead to reconciliation. But if you try and fix it right away, you're not going to really address the deepness of the cultural domination. Right. right. All righty. Okay, well, that, that's going to be a big win for years to come. So, Well, thank you. Alrighty, well, um, thank you for your words and wisdom. I'm Dennis Metzler. Um, you've been listening to The Charge. We've been dealing with idolatry with Dr. Stephen Fowle, professor of theology at Loyola University of Maryland. He's the author of Idolatry. Just follow the link below to check it out. So, Dr. Fowle, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was great to talk with you. Thanks, Dennis. All right, peace to everyone.